welcome to the Latin American History Podcast. Episode 12, The Ancient Andes, Part 2. In this episode, we'll continue our rundown of the various civilizations of the Andean region before the Incas arrived. Last time we traced the origins and development of the various cultures of the region. Today we'll examine later cultures, ones which were much bigger and more complex, and ones which laid the foundations for the Inca. The next phase of Andean history was dominated by two major powers. It started in around 500 AD. While Tiwanaku, who I'll deal with next, was dominating the southern region, another empire was rising in the north. From their base near today's city of Huanta, they quickly expanded and built what was to be the largest state so far in the Andes. In doing so, they also created the region's first multi-ethnic empire, incorporating people from different cultures into their state. They were known as the Huari. Their territory encompassed much of Peru's coast and mountain regions. There has actually been some debate about whether the Huari should be seen as one unified state. Some argue that they were more a collection of peoples without a central government, and even those who argue that they were one empire concede that it was probably a federalised one that allowed conquer's rulers to stay in place underneath the main government. Evidence to point towards a centralised authority include the extensive network of roads which were built during their rule, as well as the terraced fields they developed to allow them to carve more land out of the mountains. These can be found throughout their territory, suggesting that they bought the technology to conquered areas. They certainly had a royal family, and the discovery of a tomb at El Castillo de Juame suggests that this royal family was well thought of. The tomb was only discovered in 2013, and it dates back to before 1000 AD. It consists of a large pyramid, within which is a stone throne room. Below the throne is the burial chamber. Inside the chamber, we found 1,200 artefacts, many of which were very impressive. They included gold earrings, jewellery and silver bowls. There were also 60 human bodies inside, buried in rows in a seated position. These were people of impressive wealth. El Castillo de Huami is in the far north of Huari territory. The fact that this tomb was so far from the capital again suggests a degree of unification to the state. If this royal family lacked strong control over their peripheral territories, it's unlikely that they would have been buried there. They seem to have expanded north fairly quickly and gobbled up all of the smaller kingdoms and peoples around them. Their movement south, however, was checked by Tiwanaku. It's been suggested that these two great powers existed in a kind of Cold War state. They were probably rivals, but war was held at bay by the threat of mutual destruction. Like in the Mesoamerican region, deities and religious practices were shared and borrowed by different cultures in the Andes. The most popular Huari god seems to have been the Staff God, a deity who was usually depicted holding a staff in each hand and who was believed to have created the world. He'd been around since the days of Norte Chico, and later the Inca would turn him into Viracocha, one of their most important gods. 
The Huari were noted for their pottery and for the high level of skill which went into painting it. Much of their work survives today and can be found across South America and even in the USA. Historians recognize the Huari as one of the most important civilizations in the Americas. They share this status with their rivals, Tiwanaku. High up on the Altiplano, about an hour's drive from La Paz, Bolivia's capital and main population centre, lie the ruins of their capital, also known as Tiwanaku. These people built an empire that stretched across three countries, from Peru through Bolivia to Chile. It lasted around 700 years, although their capital is thought to have been inhabited for two and a half thousand years. Today the site is in a ruined condition, however there's still many impressive structures standing. Although much of it is still buried, it's obvious that this is once an impressive city, and at its peak it may have been home to up to 60,000 people. When I visited, in typical Bolivian fashion, Wooden pickaxes were being used to excavate the site by a team of Cholitas, a distinctive native woman complete with bowler hats. Tiwanaku is 13,000 feet above sea level, a ridiculously high altitude for such a large-scale civilization to flourish. It sits on a flat plain, part of a plateau, with snow-capped mountain peaks overlooking the site. To put this into context... That's roughly half the altitude that commercial long-haul planes fly at. If you drew a straight line up from the sea, you would have to go just under two and a half miles upwards to reach this level. If you discount mountain peaks and include only the reasonably flat, habitable land, the only place higher than the Bolivian Altiplano is Tibet. Needless to say, this is an inhospitable landscape. A large developed state should not, then, have developed on these windswept, dusty and cold high plains. Being able to produce a large surplus of food is one of the fundamental building blocks that allows energy to be put into creating a complex society. Pretty much the only thing that grows naturally here are potatoes. The frost kills off everything else. The Tiwanaku people, however, developed an ingenious system of agriculture that allowed them to overcome this problem. Thin strips of land were raised up slightly higher than their natural level and crisscrossed with channels of water. As well as irrigating the fields, the water retained some of the heat provided by the sun and this helped prevent frost from killing off their crops. By doing this, they increased their harvests enormously and they produced potatoes, quinoa and beans. To this diet, they added llama meat and fish from the nearby Lake Titicaca. Being one of the few animals that could survive in the Altiplano, llamas were an important part of their culture. As well as meat, they provided wool to make clothing, and even had a spiritual meaning. Priests would use llama entrails to try and predict the future, and even today, dried llama fetuses are widely available in Bolivian markets, as they're considered to be good for fertility. The city of Tiwanaku is thought to have been an important religious centre, as well as a political one. Even today it is revered by Bolivians, and President Evo Morales chose the site's doorway to the sun as the spot for his inauguration ceremony. The lasting influence of these people can also be found in Bolivia's population. Today most Bolivians are indigenous and alongside Spanish speak their own languages. By far the two largest groups are the Quechua, descendants of the Inca, 
and the Aymara, who speak a descendant language of that spoken by the Tuwanaku people. The city is built from huge stones, which are found far away on the other side of Lake Titicaca. It must have taken a colossal amount of cooperation to move them, and it's been theorised that maybe these people used reed boats to get them across the lake. If true, this would have been an impressive feat. The stones are truly enormous. Building a boat that could carry them without sinking must have taken quite a lot of effort. Tiwanaku's imperial phase lasted from 300 to around 1000 AD, although like the Huari, there seems to have been some dispute about the structure of their state. It appears that they created colonies in various parts of the Andes, which they populated themselves. Many other peoples lived in the area, which was under the influence of Tiwanaku. The terms of this arrangement are unclear. They may have been conquered people, or the empire may have functioned more like a confederation of semi-equals, with the city at its centre. Tiwanaku's decline was slow, and it took about 150 years to fully depopulate. This, along with scientific data, suggests that climate change may have caused it to struggle. However, there is evidence of deliberate destruction of some of the buildings, meaning that civil unrest could have played a part. The trend of successive Andean civilizations, growing larger than their predecessors, was continued by the Chimu. At their height, these people controlled an area 500 miles long along the Peruvian coast. They are thought to be cultural inheritors of the Moche people, and their society was heavily influenced by the achievements of these predecessors. Their capital was Chan Chan, an impressive walled city that was home to up to a 100,000 people. It was a sprawling place and it's still impressive today. Like all the cultures of the desert-filled Peruvian coast, the Chimus were masters at irrigation techniques and they created a network of canals to feed their fields. They also imported soil on an industrial scale, something which must have been very labour-intensive. Theirs was an artisan culture that produced fine textiles and pottery. Different parts of the city were given over to different professions, and the job you were born into is what you would do for life. Hierarchy was an important part of Chimu life, and their society was strongly stratified. It seems that the elite included the nobility of conquered peoples. Rather than deposing them, they incorporated them into their society. This nobility lived in palaces behind huge walls, cordoned off from the general population. An interesting feature of these palaces is that there were so many of them. Chimu inheritance split the king's possessions amongst his children, rather than giving them to his heir. This meant that the heir had to build a new palace and work hard to establish his power and wealth in his own right. Chimu religion was polytheistic, but special regard was given to one god who represented the moon and the sea. Human sacrifice was a part of their religion, and we've uncovered the skeletons of many children who appear to have been killed for ritual reasons. Chan Chan was around for a few hundred years, having started to really thrive in around 1100 AD. Who knows how long they would have lasted if it weren't for the arrival of the Inca. There is one more culture which deserves a mention before we move on to the Inca. The Chachapoya people. They lived tucked away in what is today a remote region of northern Peru. 
They lived up in the mountains, but in an area where the mountains start to give way to the Amazon jungle lowlands of the east. It's theorised that they may themselves have once been Amazon people who migrated up into the Andes. Their favourite choice of homeland put them in the perfect place to take advantage of the differences in the two ecosystems. The Chachapoyas took the role of middlemen traders, bringing plants and other goods that originated in the hot, steamy lowlands up to the high mountain kingdoms of the Andes. In order to achieve this, they used rivers to quickly move through the difficult geography. Although the Andes run along the extreme west of the South American continent, there are many rivers which flow east into the Amazon basin and across hundreds of miles of continent, rather than west over the tens of miles it takes to reach the Pacific. This allowed the Chachapoya to travel quickly down from their mountain homelands and into the jungle. Here they collected the goods which could not have been produced by the mountain civilizations and sold them on. It's thought that this trade helped them grow rich. Like the other Andean civilizations, the Chachapoya did not have writing. They did, however, use the quipu. Now these have actually been around since almost the very beginning of Andean culture, so they're by no means a Chachapoyan thing. They were also used extensively by the Inca, and it's in relation to them that the Kilpu has become most well known. Anyway, I mention them here because they need mentioning somewhere, and here is as good a place as any. So what is a Kipu? Well, at first glance they look like some sort of decorative piece of clothing. They consist of a bunch of fabric strings tied along the length of a main string. Sometimes these strings have different colourings, and each one has a series of knots tied into it. We have known for a long time that these were used to record numerical information. The number of knots might record things like dates or debts, for example. We now believe, however, that they may have been a substitute for writing. Instead of using letters or symbols, the ancient Andean people may have used variables in the quipus to signify sounds and words. The lengths of the strings, the distances between them, their colour, the positions of the knots, and even the type of knot all had a meaning, which you could read like a book if you knew how. Unfortunately, we don't know how, and until someone works out how to read them, their contents are a mystery. Things like this provide a fascinating example of human resourcefulness. We tend to think, you either have writing or you don't. It doesn't often occur to us that there might be alternative ways of recording information. Perhaps if our most ancient ancestors had done things slightly differently, we would all be using knots and strings today, rather than pen and paper. One of the most interesting things about the Chachapoya is their method of burial. Not for them were simple graves on flat ground. Instead, they chose to put their bodies in caves halfway down sheer cliff faces. You can see these burials if you watch Jago Cooper's documentaries, Lost Kingdoms of South America. This series came in very useful when researching this episode, and as he is an academic and head of the Americas at the British Museum, I consider them to be academically rigorous enough to use on this podcast. They are available on YouTube at the moment, And if what I'm describing in this episode interests you, I recommend you check them out. Anyway, in watching the episode on the Chachapoyas, you can see with your own eyes how inaccessible these caves are. 
the ones Cooper visits are halfway down a vertical 300 metre cliff face. Cooper has enough trouble getting to them using modern techniques and equipment, so how these people climbed up and down these cliff faces while carrying the bodies of their dead is a mystery. Furthermore, some surfaces within the cave tombs are worn, suggesting that they were repeated visits. It seems the Chachapoya did not just bury their dead, but they returned to visit them often, meaning repeated climbs up the cliff face. Some of the caves have mausoleum buildings built into them, and again, how they got all the materials there is a mystery. Others simply have strange sarcophagi. These are roughly human figures which sit at the lip of the cave and look out over the surrounding area. Although they are much smaller in size, the closest thing they can be compared to in terms of appearance might be the Easter Island heads. This is an imperfect comparison, however. Some of the Chachapoya dead were mummified, a common practice amongst Andean civilizations. The mummified bodies seem to date later than the non-mummified ones, so it is thought that this practice may have been imported from outside, probably by the Inca. Like those skeletons found in the cliffs, the mummified bodies appear not to have been simply left. Instead they were moved, re-wrapped, and generally interacted with by the Chachapoya. It's thought that they would be bought out and put on display at times. The dead were clearly very important to them. We don't know why exactly, or what the dead meant to them, but it was probably something to do with marking a connection to the land and to their past. If their ancestors of many generations ago were still around and visitable, it could show that their land was truly theirs, that it had been forever. Another interesting feature of the dead is the equality of their sarcophagi. Normally, a person's status is easily worked out by the way in which they were buried. We know nothing about most ancient Egyptians, for example, and they were probably buried with little ceremony. Their kings, however, were given great pyramids to mark them out as special. This is a pattern repeated in most cultures, with the graves of important people being in some way grander than the average. To our knowledge, this is not the case with the Chachapoya. We are yet to find any sarcophagi that stand out from the others. From this, it's been hypothesized that perhaps the Chachapoya were as equal in life as they were in death. Perhaps they did not have kings or nobles. It is, of course, possible that their noble graves are buried somewhere we have not yet discovered. Or perhaps they had different ways of honouring their dead. Perhaps when they were taken out, different things were done to different bodies, depending on their status in life. We can't say for sure, but it's puzzling that we haven't found any special graves. The egalitarian hypothesis is backed up by architecture as well. All the houses we have uncovered are similar. There are no palaces or grand structures designed to mark status. While their society may have been internally quite harmonious, it appears that they still faced external threats. Their settlements were surrounded by walls, and they may have faced opposition from the Huari, who were nearby at least in the beginning of the Chachapoyan civilization. The most impressive walls can be seen at their biggest site, Quelap. These are over 70 foot high. Quelap is an impressive settlement, and it stretches across 15 acres. As far as we know, it was first settled around 500 AD. With its walls, it looks like a fortress, but it's thought that it may have had a ceremonial purpose as well. Its walls are full of burials, 
and it's thought that the bodies were brought here from all over Chachapoya territory. We know little more about Quelap or the Chachapoya, but it's clear that they were one of the most important civilizations in the Americas. Quelap itself deserves to be counted among the great sites of the New World. So that ends our rush tour of Andean history. As you can see, there is so much more to the region than just the Inca. A succession of civilizations rose and fell over thousands of years, each learning from the last and building on their achievements. There are just so many of them, and the region's history is as rich as that found anywhere else in the world. I hope these episodes held your interest. There was so much to cover, as I decided to do away with analysis completely and just outline what we knew about each one. This also meant foregoing the depth and level of detail which I've aimed for in previous episodes. It was the only way to get through all the material, and in truth, each one of these civilizations deserves an episode of their own. As the purpose of these pre-Columbian episodes is to lay the groundwork for the Latin stage of the region's history, I decided not to go down that route. If you are interested in learning more, however, I will be putting some resources, both academic and non-academic, up on the History of Latin America website. You can use these to discover more about particular civilizations covered in the last two episodes. The website can be found at www.maxsargent.com slash the history of Latin America. Sargent is spelt S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. You can also find more information about the show at the Facebook page, facebook.com slash the history of Latin America. Alternatively, you can find the podcast on Twitter. The handle is at history Latin am. That's history Latin am. Before finishing, I'd like to say that looking at the statistics, this podcast is growing. More and more people seem to be listening to it. That's really encouraging. If you like the podcast and you'd like to help other people find it, I would ask you if you could be so kind as to leave a review on iTunes or to tell anyone you know who might be interested in it. Thank you. I really appreciate the support. Next episode, we move on to the first of three about the most famous Andean civilization, the Inca. Until then, thanks for listening. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.